that you will uh, point us to Jesus, that you help us to see more and more clearly who he is and what he's done, and that you will give us the confidence and certainty we need uh, to live in a troubled world. We pray that you will draw us closer to him, and we pray that he'll be glorified. So we ask your spirit to be at work in each one of our hearts and your spirit to strengthen me to teach your word rightly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us have expectations, don't we? We have expectations about how things are going to turn out, how things will work, and sometimes reality meets our expectations. But sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't meet our expectations, we, we get disappointed. And sometimes it's not a big deal. We just shrug our shoulders and say, well, you know, it's, it's the way it is, really. But sometimes we can't do that. The disappointment is far more profound. And sometimes it makes us even wonder what God is doing. We wonder if things are really going according to plan because... We know for sure it's not going according to our plan. And sometimes we're even led to doubt God. And we wonder, maybe, maybe we should look for meaning and purpose somewhere else instead of in God's Word. We wonder, maybe we should look to someone apart from Jesus for our ultimate fulfillment. We wonder if maybe we should look for another road, another leader. Is Jesus really the one? Or should we look for another? Well, in our Bible reading this morning, things hadn't been going quite according to plan for John the Baptist. Uh, John had in, uh, Luke has introduced John the Baptist to us much earlier on in the Gospel. In fact, we knew about him before he was born. Uh, back in chapter 1, the angel appeared to Zechariah, the, the priest, and said you, uh, uh, that you and your wife are going to have a child in, in your old age, and he's going to be great before God, and, and many of the people in Israel are going to turn to God because of him. And then when John was born, his father prophesied that he would be the prophet of the Most High, who would go before the Lord to prepare his way. And then by the time we get to chapter 3, John is all grown up, and he's out in the wilderness by the River Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, warning God's people that judgment is coming, calling on God's people to turn back to Him. The people thought, maybe this is the Christ. But He said, no. He said, I baptize you with water, but He who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand to clear His threshing floor, to gather the wheat into His barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. The winnowing fork, you know, that's the fork that's like a shovel, you know what I mean? A big one, right? And you use it to throw the grain into the wind and the wind blows away the chaff, the, the bits that are rubbish, that light. And then the wheat, the good stuff, the heavier one drops down. And John is saying, look, the judgment's coming soon. The winnowing fork is already in the hand of the one who's going to wield it. He's going to divide the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad. 
He will gather God's true people together and bring judgment and everlasting destruction on the wicked. This one who is coming will bring judgment and salvation. Judgment on God's enemies, salvation for God's people. And John was there to get things ready for him. But then John was put in prison. You might know the story. King Herod seduced and slept with Herodias, his brother's wife. Later, he divorced his own wife and persuaded Herodias to leave her husband and, and marry him. And John the Baptist called him out. He said, that's not right. You shouldn't do that kind of thing. And for that, he was put in prison. Still in chapter 3. And that's last we hear about John until this passage. And since then, Jesus has been preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons, exercising great ministry, and John is still in prison. Jesus' disciples have been chosen, and John is still in prison. Crowds and crowds of people are turning to Jesus, and people far and wide are coming to Him. The sick are healed, the dead are raised, the lepers cleansed, and John is still in prison. And what do you think John is thinking? What do you think he's longing for? What is he waiting for? What would you, what would you be waiting for if you're, if you're stuck in prison because you've condemned sin and proclaimed righteousness? Wouldn't you be waiting for that coming one? The coming one that you yourself was the one who announced? The coming one whose winnowing fork is in his hand to, to divide the wheat from the chaff, who will bring about justice, who will bring judgment and condemnation against the enemies of God's people like King Herod and bring salvation to God's affected people like, like John. The one who will bring in the kingdom of God, who would reign forever and replace the terrible kingdoms of this world like the kingdom of Herod. You can understand that John is anxious for that to happen, can't you? He's got nothing to do but sit in prison all day and wait and think. But he could be executed any moment, any time that Herod feels like giving the order. John has done his part. He's warned Israel of the judgment to come. Warning given. He's prepared the way for the coming king. Even identified him as Jesus. But now it's up to Jesus. And the problem is, Jesus doesn't seem to be in a hurry to bring in the kingdom. He's happy to go from town to town, preaching and preaching and preaching. He's happy to go on healing individual after individual who comes to him, one by one by one. He's happy to keep on driving out evil spirits, raising the occasional dead person, having meals with tax collectors and sinners. That's, that's all well and good, but, but when's that going to end? You know, the winning eye fork is in his hand, isn't it? Why not use it? But Jesus is not rallying the troops. He's, he's not using his great miraculous power, which he obviously has for anything of political significance. I mean, just imagine, you know, Jesus with his miraculous power could single-handedly enter Herod's palace, blind all the soldiers, 
or, or make them lame or something. Right? Command Herod be suspended midair. Free John, demand to be made king. I mean, he's got a power to control the wind and the waves, isn't he? But what's he doing? All those healings and giving sight to the blind and making the lame walk. and He's supposed to be playing king and he's mucking around playing preacher and doctor and exorcist. Now, John doesn't deny Jesus. He doesn't say, I, I don't believe anymore. He doesn't say, I I've been pointing to the wrong person all this time. But he does need reassurance. And so finally in our passage today, he sends two of his disciples to Jesus. And through them, he, well, he, he tells them to go and ask Jesus the, the, the million-dollar question. Verse 19, go to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Are you really the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? I wonder what my own faith would have been like in his situation. I suspect I probably would suffer from doubts as well. And I'll start wondering if Jesus really was the one, hasn't done anything, or what, or what I expected, and doesn't seem to be doing anything about me. John does the right thing. He brings his doubts to Jesus. And that's what I should do, shouldn't I? Whenever I'm facing doubts as well. And so through these disciples, he asked Jesus, and we see Luke records exactly the same question twice, which means this is an important question. Huh? This is the thing. Come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, verse 20, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I wonder if you've ever asked that question to Jesus. Whether you've seen this, this agony of doubt. If you are Lord, and if you're so good, why? Why is this happening to me when I'm following you? And why do you let all kinds of things happen in this world if you're Lord? I mean, why do you let terrorists blow people up? Are you really going to come back and judge the world and bring in justice? Because it hasn't happened yet. Are you really the one who is going to bring in the kingdom? Who's going to sort things out? This world's getting worse and worse. Will you make everything right? Or shall we look for another? Now the Holy Spirit through, through Luke wants to help us with this because remember, Luke's gospel, remember Luke chapter 1, Luke's gospel was written to this guy called Theophilus so that he would have certainty about what he's being taught. And so the Spirit will use what Luke has written to help us to have that certainty as well. Is Jesus the one who is to come or should we look for another? Well, Luke gives us a clue in the very next verse. Verse 21. In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. Okay. It's the report that Luke's giving us his hearers. And obviously we weren't there for ourselves. We need to rely on his report. But 
the fact that he's giving it right here, just after the question is asked, means it must be important for us, isn't it, in answering the question. And this is confirmed beyond any doubt because this is what Jesus says next. To help John move from uncertainty or, or doubt to, to, to certainty, Jesus tells John's disciples to give Luke, sorry, Jesus tells John's disciples to give John the very same report that Luke has just given us. He says in verse 22, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Now again, you look at this list and you think, wow, this is, this is really good things, but how is that going to help John be reassured that Jesus is that coming one? It's good for the blind, it's good for the lame, good for the deaf, even the dead. How does it help John? And how does this help Theophilus, Luke's reader, have certainty that Jesus is the coming one? And how does it help us have certainty that Jesus is the coming one? Well, the words that Jesus uses actually go back to three prophecies from the Old Testament, all from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote his prophecies about 700 years before Christ. And, and he was warning people of a coming exile because God was going to punish his people for their wickedness by, by ending the kingship, by, by destroying the nation, sending them off into to Babylon, away from the land that had given their forefathers. But he also spoke of a hope beyond the exile, a time when God would, would come once again to save his people. He would restore the kingdom. He himself would reign over his people as, as a shepherd over his sheep. And the justice will be made not only to Israel, but, but, but extended to the whole world. And there are many pictures that Isaiah uses of what happens when God comes to restore his people. And the three of them we're looking at today. Look at Isaiah 29, 18 on the screen. Here is what it says. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. And then, if you go to Isaiah 61, which actually Jesus applied to himself uh, earlier on in Luke's Gospel, uh, it talks about the, the person that God uses to bring in this kingdom. Uh, and and in, the, in the words of this person on the next uh, two slides, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to, to bring good news to the poor, to send me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty of the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God. And all the ones that I've underlined, those are the ones that Jesus has been quoting, isn't it? And then, and then, there's our Old Testament reading today from Isaiah 35. Another picture that points to what happens beyond the exile when God comes to save His people. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And if we read on in Isaiah 35 just now, we would have seen many images that are figurative. Streams in the desert, highway of holiness. But, but in what Jesus has been doing, as he's gone around doing his ministry, some of that symbolism is just breaking into reality. The eyes of the blind are literally open, and the, and the, 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 the tongue of the mute sings for joy, is unleashed, and 
What is this showing? It's showing that the exile is nearly over. The kingdom is near. God has come to save His people. God has come to save His people. And so in spite of the fact that it doesn't look like He's interested in taking power and becoming king, Jesus really is the promised king. In spite of appearances of the commentary, look, the works show it. He is that promised one. He is the coming one. The way he's operating is not necessarily what John expects, but he's the one. In fact, he is God come to save his people. He's the one. There is no need to look for another. John can be certain because Jesus is fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies. Theophilus can be certain because Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. And we can be certain because Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. And so look what it says again in Isaiah 35. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those with an anxious heart, Be strong. Fear not. Trust God. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. If Jesus is really God, come to save his people, then John has to trust him, doesn't he? Yeah, Cannot understand why the one who comes to be king has got to be spending his time teaching and healing and casting out demons. Yes, he cannot understand why the one who comes to be king has to spend his time instead of judging the nations, is going around serving the people. Yes, he can't understand why he hasn't taken his power and, and, and started to reign, leaving his forerunner in prison. That's why he's got these doubts. But he's got a choice. Will he look at Jesus in light of God's word in the Old Testament? Will he look at Jesus and trust him? Or will he be scandalized or offended by the surprising things that Jesus is doing and fall away into unbelief? Jesus both warns him and encourages him at the same time. As he says in verse 23, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one. Uh, John was in danger, wasn't he, of being offended. Or another way of translating it, scandalized. Or another way of translating it, caused to fall away because of Jesus. And you know what? There are times when we will face this danger as well. There are times when we won't understand what God is doing and understand why He's delaying. And when we face those times, we have a choice to make. Because doubts will rise in our mind. Will we look at Christ in light of God's Word and trust Him? Or will we be scandalized or offended by the surprising way that God does things and fall into unbelief. John was in danger of being scandalized, but for the Jews of Jesus' day, the greatest scandal was still to come. A scandal which John never lived to see. 
The greatest scandal to the Jewish mind was not just what the Messiah would do, but where he would end up. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul describes the crucified Messiah, Christ crucified, as a stumbling block, an offense, a, a scandal to the Jews. It is offensive to suggest that the Messiah would die on a cross, a tree of all places, which, which in, in the Old Testament law meant he was under God's curse. How can God's king, his promised one, die in that way, suffering God's curse? A terrible, terrible punishment. And yet Jesus says, blessed are those who are not scandalized by me. We know that the death of Jesus on the cross was the way that God was going to save his people. We know the death of Jesus on the cross was the way that God was going to bring in his kingdom. He saved us, his people, by dying there for our sins. By taking our place under the curse. Facing the judgment of God on our behalf so that, so that we can be forgiven of our rebellion against God. And when we look to Jesus and all his weakness on the cross, we, we see there the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Blessed are those who are not offended by this, but it is offensive. But in the grace of God, even as the offense of the cross is greater than the offense of Jesus in John's day, it also comes with something to make it of greater certainty. For what gives us even more confidence than the works we see Jesus doing in this passage is the, is the great sign of his resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead in space-time history, seen by many eyewitnesses. The historical evidence is there for us. And in light of the Old Testament, His resurrection assures us that He is God's promised King. He really is. God has identified Him so clearly as His Son by raising Him from the dead. No doubt about it. And so like Theophilus, we too can have certainty. Jesus is the one who is to come. And we should never, 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 never look for another. Blessed are those who are not offended by him. Well, having established that, Jesus now teaches us more about this coming one. And we're coming to the next point on the outline. He will show us in a moment that this coming one is the Lord but he will do so by talking about John the Baptist. And so in verse 24, John then turn, uh, Jesus then turns to the crowd uh, to speak to them about John. Because if they really know about John, then they will understand about this coming one. Uh, you remember, many of them had gone out into the desert, the wilderness, uh, near the Jordan to, to hear the message. And so Jesus asks them, uh, he says in verse 24, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A, a reed shaken by the wind? You didn't go out all the way just to look at the vegetation, did you? No, of course not. Uh, what did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Uh, behold, those who dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. They didn't go out to admire John's fashion sense. Right? He wore peculiar clothes, but they weren't fine clothes. So verse 26, why, why did you go out to see? A prophet? 
Well, actually, Jesus says, you're right, he is a prophet. Uh, Think of all the prophets, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi. Well, John is up there in that league. There with the big boys. But actually, he's bigger than one of those big boys. In verse 26, it says, he is more than a prophet. Wow. Is there a category for that? Well, at least that's a prophecy, right? Verse 27. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now, interesting, isn't it? He is the messenger who prepares the way, and he is more than a prophet. That means the one who he's preparing the way for is even, even bigger isn't it? Why do we need to know more about this messenger thing? Why is it here? Because, you see, that's a piece of the jigsaw puzzle which again helps us to see who Jesus is. Um, And again, to understand it, we've got to go back to the Old Testament background. And the problem is there are two passages in the Old Testament that it might be. The first one is from Exodus 23. Behold, I send an angel, or word angel and messenger, same word, before you or before your face, to guard you on the way, to bring you to the place I prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Don't rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. My name is in him. All right? This is, uh, this is uh, Exodus 23 is uh, Israel's at Mount Sinai. Uh, God has just given them the law, and now he's promising to take them to the promised land. And he will do so in the person of this, this angel or this messenger. And if, what the, if this is what Jesus is referring to, then it's not about promise and fulfillment. It's, it's just that the mission of John is like the mission of the angel. He will lead the people to the place of promise. He will lead the people to Jesus. And God's people need to pay careful attention to him. Well, that's one. The other passage in the Old Testament that it could be referring to comes from the prophet Malachi. The last prophet of the Old Testament who prophesied 400 years before this. And here's what he wrote. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I think this is the more prominent one to the background of the passage, even though there are echoes of the Exodus one uh, still there. I think because he's talking about preparing the way, uh, which is not in the Exodus, uh, and it's here in this passage. And remember how John the Baptist's father prophesies that he'll prepare the way of the Lord. And furthermore, it goes on to talk about the one who will come, doesn't it? Which kind of links this passage as well. So let's look at it more carefully. Who is speaking here in Malachi? Oh, it's, it's the Lord of hosts, isn't it? The Lord Almighty, the Lord of armies. And so God is making a promise here for the future. He will send this person, my messenger. God will send him to prepare the way for him. And then the Lord will come to his temple. And if you keep on reading, when he comes to his temple, he brings judgment and salvation to his people. And if this is what Jesus is referring to, and I believe it is, then the coming one that John has been preparing the way for 
is none other than the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel himself. And if Jesus is the coming one, as we have previously established, then Jesus is Lord. He is God. And soon he will come to bring judgment on his temple. So John the Baptist is more than a prophet. He's the messenger who prepares the way for God to come and save his people. And that's a pretty grand and remarkable thing to be able to do, isn't it? In fact, Jesus says in verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And you know why? Because Jesus is so great that there is nothing greater than someone can do, that someone can do, than to prepare the way for him. Jesus is so great that there's nothing greater than someone can do to prepare the way for him. All the prophets and priests in the Old Testament, yes, they pointed to Christ, but none of them had actually seen Christ. All the prophets had spoken of him, but none, only John had been able to say, this is the one. He had seen Jesus, he had known Jesus, he had pointed to Jesus more clearly than any prophet in previous history. And so among anybody, he was the greatest. But look what Jesus goes on to say in the second half of the verse. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Why? Well, if Jesus is so great that the greatest thing someone can do is point the way to Jesus, then the very least in the kingdom of God can do that in a greater way than John, can't they? Isn't that amazing? Think how great John is? If you are in the kingdom, you are greater than John. And John is greater than Moses, Elijah, and all the prophets. You are greater than John. Because not only have you seen who Jesus is, you've also seen what he did. John never made it that far. You know that he died on the cross to take your punishment for your sins. You know that he was raised from the dead. You know he has ascended to heaven as king of the universe. You know his kingdom doesn't depend on political power. You are part of that everlasting kingdom, the kingdom that will not be destroyed. You know the king as the one who loved you and gave himself for you. And if you know the king like that, then you are in a far, far more privileged position than John, whose vision, as great as it was compared to all the people before him, was still cloudy. And you can point others to Jesus in a far better way than John the Baptist ever could. You have the words of eternal life. You are greater than John the Baptist. Because the greatest thing someone can do is point people to Jesus. I was listening to Chris Flint speak at the mission seminar yesterday. Uh, when Chris came out here as an intern, he had recently graduated from studying physics at Oxford. And his previous goal was to use nuclear fusion to create limitless energy supply for the human race. And if he'd done that, that would have been a pretty great thing to do, isn't it? But he said he chose not to do that so he could spend even more time doing something even greater. And that is telling people about Jesus. You want to pursue greatness? True greatness is not found in diplomas and degrees, in portfolios and properties, 
in fame and fortune. True greatness comes from knowing Jesus, pointing people to him. It may be that the people are your children or your grandchildren, your nephews or your nieces or the kids in the Sunday school. That's greatness. Jesus is the coming one. The coming one is the Lord, the God of Israel. And he is so great that nothing we can do is greater than exalting him. Let's now think about the response that people make to Jesus. And people respond to the Lord Jesus in, in different ways. And so when we point people to Jesus, we can actually expect two kinds of responses. There will be some who receive him, and there will be some who reject him. There will be some who are offended, and there will be some who are blessed. Verse 29 shows us the positive reaction. Uh, those who had believed John and had been baptized by him uh, believed Jesus, and they include, verse 29, the tax collectors, a people who were considered by the Jews of the day as the worst of sinners. And yet they heard John's message, they believed his witness in the one who was to come. And verse 29 again, they declared God just. Or literally, they justified God. That is, that, that heard God's message, sorry, John's call for repentance, to get ready for the coming one. They knew they'd sinned. They knew they needed to be forgiven. So they were baptized by John. And that now Jesus is here. They know he's the coming one. They know the kingdom's about to dawn. And they say, God is right to do all this. Bear with him. And then on the negative side, well, are those who weren't baptized by John, and they reject Jesus. Because by rejecting John and his call to repent, they had rejected the will of God. And they include, in verse 30, the, the Pharisees and the lawyers, the religious elite, who should have known better. And it's this group uh, that Jesus is talking about in verse 31 to 35. He starts the, that section by asking a rhetorical question in verse 31. To what shall I compare the people of this generation, and, and what are they like? And then he answers himself in verse 32. They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to each other. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you do not weep. Now, now, many people say that Jesus is complaining here about those who reject John on the one hand and, and reject Jesus on the other. But notice, actually, who is singing this song? It's, it's the kids in the marketplace, isn't it? And who are the kids in the marketplace like? They are like the people of that generation. Uh, and so it's, it's the religious elite and the people who follow them who are like the children who say, we played a flute for you and you didn't dance, we sang a dirge and, and you didn't mourn. So why are they saying this? Well, verse 33, John the Baptist comes eating no bread and drinking no wine. There he is in the desert living a very austere life, surviving on locusts and wild honey, preaching the word of God. What do they say? He's weird, he's mad, or actually much worse, verse 33, he has a demon. He won't eat and drink and enjoy all the normal things that normal people do. 
because he's got a demon. We want him to relax and calm down, stop being so serious, so focused, so condemning of others, so judgmental. We played the flute and he didn't dance. We don't like him. And on the other hand, comes Jesus, the Son of Man, in verse 34. And what's he doing? He's eating and drinking. And he's enjoying life. And he's mixing freely with all kinds of people, some of them quite seedy people. He's hanging out with them, he's loving them, he's spending time with them, and in the midst of that, he's bringing them God's Word. And so what do they say about him? Verse 34, look at him, glutton, drunkard, mixes with tax collectors and sinners. You know, you can tell a man by the company he keeps, and, and Jesus keeps bad company. And he seems to be enjoying it. We played a dirge, a funeral song. He doesn't mourn. We don't like him either. Now, just a side point. Side point. Do you notice how different Jesus and John the Baptist are? And yet they're both from God. They're both faithfully proclaiming the kingdom, doing the job they're given to do in very different ways. And you know what? We're all different as well, isn't it? Different personalities, different backgrounds, different areas of expertise, different styles, different roles, different ways of playing it. We're not all the same. God never expected all to be the same. But we're all pointing people to Jesus, doing it in different ways. So there's Jesus and John as different as chalk and cheese, the austere forerunner, the partying king, and the religious elites and those who follow him, both also cannot. And so with people like that, you really can't win, can you? Right? Go one way, you find fault. Go the other way, you also find fault. Why? Because the thing they're complaining about is not the real issue. It's just the excuse. The real issue is that they do not want to submit to the Word of God. They want to call the tune. The only God they will tolerate, the only messenger of God they will tolerate is one who will dance or sing to their tune following a religion of our own imagination or culture or upbringing is so much easier, isn't it, than dealing with a God who is there. And you can always find an excuse to reject the message by finding something that you don't like about the messenger. So Jesus and John, they bring division. Those who reject them find excuses. Why? Reasons to complain. But Jesus reminds us that there's also the other side. There are those who trust Him. Wisdom, He says in verse 35, is justified by all her children. Remember back in verse 29, Luke told us that those who accepted John's baptism justified God. And Jesus is actually telling the same thing now. God in His wisdom sent John. God in His wisdom sent Jesus. And even if many people reject them, God will be shown to be wise in what He has done. And those who truly belong to Him, who truly are His children, will acknowledge that. And they will say, God is right. God is wise. I'm with Him. So, we've heard about people in those days. We've seen the divide. But let me ask you now, where do you stand in this divide? Do you accept that God is right when He says that you're a sinner 
And you need to repent and be forgiven by Him. Do you believe that Jesus is that one who was to come? God come to save His people. Will you trust in His death on the cross for you? And acknowledge Him as the Lord, the one who will rule your life? Or will you be offended and scandalized by the message? And make all kinds of excuses to reject Jesus. Please turn and trust in Jesus. Because you know, he will come again as a judge. Yes, he's delayed. And yes, he keeps delaying. But let me tell you, the time will... He had still has got that winnowing fork in his hand. And he will separate those who belong to him from those who don't. And he will bring the judgment of everlasting destruction of those who haven't yet been forgiven. So please, forget the excuses. Repent and come to Jesus and receive the forgiveness that he offers. But let me close by reminding us again of John the Baptist's struggle. We know a lot more than John ever did. We know why Jesus didn't bring in the kingdom there and then as John hoped. We who are greater than John know and believe God's wise plan was that the kingdom would come only through Jesus' death and resurrection. And yet there are still many things that we don't know. We don't know why John had to languish in prison. We don't know why God leaves us in certain situations, why he allows certain things to happen in our lives. We don't know why he delays. Well, we do know why he delays. He wants people to repent, doesn't he? But like John, we, we might be tempted to be scandalized. We might be tempted to take offense at the way things happen and the way he does things. We may even be tempted to look for another. But like John, we need to talk to Jesus about it. To bring our concerns to him. And Jesus will call us, as he called John, to, to listen to the reports of the eyewitnesses. To see what he's done. And to look at what he's done in light of the scriptures. And we will know that he really is that coming one. And if he is the coming one who loves us so much that he takes the judgment for our sins on our behalf. If he's the risen one who brought in the kingdom and will rule the, and rules the universe, if he's the God, if he is God who came to save his people, that's us, then we can trust him. We can trust him even if we don't understand what he's doing. We will rely on him and not look for another. And instead, we will point people to him with confidence, knowing that his wisdom is right and he will be shown to be right in the end. And we can confidently say, I'm with him. So brothers and sisters, Jesus is the promised one. There is no other. Blessed are those who are not offended by him. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you have given us this, your word, that we may be certain that Jesus is the one that you promised. Thank you that in doing the things that he did, and thank you by, that by, by having that messenger that he had, he showed that, that, that he is God come to save his people. Thank you for the privilege it is that we can know him and proclaim him. Please, Father, we pray you help us to realize how great this is and to make it our priority in life. And Father, we pray that in times of doubt and difficulty, you, you help us to come to him, to listen to his word. Please save us from being scandalized or offended by him. Help us to keep trusting him, knowing that he is good. Help us to keep trusting in his death alone for our salvation. And help us to appreciate the assurance that you've given us that he really is the one. We thank you for raising him from the dead. May we hold fast to him because you hold fast to us. And we pray too for those among us here who haven't yet put their faith in him. Please, Father, give them eyes to see who Jesus really is. Please help them to dispense with the excuses, to repent of living apart from Jesus as Lord. Please draw them to Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life and make them part of your glorious kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.